Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. I'm Jane Winter, Account Director at Dietitian Connection, and I'm also an accredited practicing dietitian. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where you're listening to this podcast. I'm recording from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are listening today. And we're talking about constipation and nutrition. One in four Australians, and that's more than 6 million people, are affected by constipation. And as dietitians, we know that lifestyle change is the first-line treatment for primary constipation. And that's notably the three Fs, so fitness, fibre and fluid. But now there's increasing research and knowledge around the gut microbiome and potential therapies like prebiotics and probiotics. So can we do more to help our patients feel better? This month, February, is Gut Health Month, a national month to talk about common common gut problems and the nutrition interventions that can help patients and clients feel better. Today, I'm joined by Sandra McHale to dive into the common gut problem of constipation, the key interventions that may help our patients and clients, including emerging and exciting space of the biotics, and discuss what this means for your practice. Sandra McHale is an internationally known accredited practicing dietitian and founder and director of Nutrition A to Z by Sandra McHale. She holds a Bachelor of Nutrition and Dietetics from Monash University in Australia, a Master of Advanced Studies in Nutrition and Health, and is a member of Dietitians Australia. She also holds a Sports Nutrition Diploma by the International Olympic Committee. Being a globetrotting dietitian, she's got extensive experience in clinical practice, nutrition consulting, and health promotion, working in Australia, United Arab Emirates, and Switzerland. And today, she's joining us from Switzerland. Her main areas of specialty are digestive disease, sports nutrition, and eating disorders. As a mental health advocate, her workshops and articles on stress and nutrition have gained popularity internationally, where she was personally invited by Ariana Huffington to contribute to her global platform Thrive and has appeared on CNN to talk about nutrition and stress in the workplace. Our podcast today is supported by The Culture Co and Dairy Farmers Gut Active. And just a disclaimer, this podcast is not and is not intended to be medical advice, which should be tailored to your individual circumstances. The podcast is for information only, and we advise you exercise your own judgment before deciding to use the information provided. Professional medical advice should be obtained before taking action. Okay, let's get into it. Thanks very much for your time today, Sandra. And as I said, you're joining us from Switzerland. Indeed, I am. Thank you for having me. So, so we can get to know you, and I'm really interested um, to hear your story so far. So you did your dietetics training in Melbourne, um, but how did you come to develop this business and end up practicing in Switzerland? All right, before we uh, jump into it, because I think the million-dollar question that everyone's always interested to learn is like, where on earth are you from? Because I have potentially the most confusing accent. True. Um, so Australian, <laughs> so I am Australian, Australian born um, of Greek, Egyptian origin, and I did grow up in the Middle East. So I grew up in Dubai back in the 80s and 90s. Um, 
life back then was between Australia and Dubai for a very, very long time. Um, and went back to Australia. Uh, when was it for uni? So I went to Monash and that's where I got my nutrition dietetics degree. Um, fast forward to where I am today. Uh, so I've been in Switzerland now for almost 10 years. Um, I've got a private practice here. Um, I, let's say I, I got into, it's just funny because a lot of people ask, you know, how, how did you get into the world of gut health? And my dad is a gastroenterologist. So you can say I was born into it. Um, dinner table talk was always around, um, things like rectal bleeding and anal fissures and the horrors that we would see on our friends' faces. Yeah, so people so. must have loved being invited to dinner at your place. <laughs> I was just going to say yes. And then they were just like, did your dad just go rectal or anal? I was like, yeah, that's just totally normal. Um, so, yeah, so it, it's just, it was a huge, huge interest of mine. And um, when I moved from Australia back to Dubai at the age of, I can remember now, so back when I was 25, I would say that's where it all started. Um, I ran a hospital department back then, but that's when I was diagnosed with IBS. Um, so I was extremely burnt out. Stress levels were off the roof. Um, anxiety, you name it. So I had to take um, a step back. Um, and I think that's really where my interest started. It's like, right, what is going on? Because um, it was a year of hell, literally, um, from, you know, going from place to place. Obviously, I didn't want to see my own father for, you know, you don't want to see your own parent, <laughs> although I should have from the beginning. Um, but let's say just, you know, at the end of the day, we, we ruled everything out and it really just came down to, Sandra, you're a dietitian, try to figure this out um, with the support of, you know, the right people. Um and yeah, so this is where, it, where I would say where it all began, um, just going through that experience. I just kind of um, dove in head first, started seeing quite a lot of clients with very similar um, scenarios or similar stories. Um, and this is basically where I created this approach of not, you know, nutrition is at the core of, of everything that I do, but also these essential well-being pillars of mind, movement and sleep. Because for me personally, um, mind was a missing piece of the puzzle and obviously being diagnosed with IBS, you know, a disorder of, of the gut brain interaction or gut brain axis. Um, this was something that, you know, I didn't fully uh, commit to. Let's just put it this way. Um, so, yeah. So where so you at? went so from clinical into private practice? Private practice. Is that yep. the sort of exactly. path? Right. Um, in between, I would say I joined a startup here in Switzerland um, and which, which really, really took off. But also let's say my business was my side hustle. So the brand is all, the brand nutrition aid is that is 11 years old. Um, and this is where the demand started. And I was like, right, I, if I'm going to do this, I need to do this now. Um, and yep. So went from clinical to startup work, which had nothing to do with, you know, client work and then into private practice. So your practice at the moment, is that um, primarily seeing patients one-on-one um, -on -one or is it other components to your practice? There are definitely other components. So I do a lot of consulting. I do a lot of corporate um, work as well, projects. Um, I do have, I mean, I've had to hire another clinical nutritionist. Um, so we are expanding. But most, I would say a large chunk of my work is, let's say, one-to-one -one clients. Um, and the kind of clients that we see um, let's say me personally, obviously, are gut health, um, so digestive disorders, um, but I also work in eating disorders and sports nutrition as well. 
And how have you developed your uh, skills and expertise in the area of gut health? Is it is it just through your own reading and research or have you done anything more formalised or...? So lots of different formal trainings as well that you can get. So whether it's, you know, just keeping up to date with all the CPD events that are around. Um, I would say, I'm not going to say the downfall of just being here in Europe It's or, or being in Switzerland. Um, dietetics is fairly a new field per se. It's not as prominent. Um, so people still see dietitians as like, right, to eat my fruit and veg and that's about it. Or to see a dietitian as just mainly for weight loss. Um, you don't have highly special, you know, dietitians who specialize in certain areas. Um, so a lot of the times I have to seek a lot of my training, um, you know, things that were offered back in Australia um, and the UK as well. But it's also just seeing um, more and more patients or clients, as I'd like to call them here. And building a very strong network with gastroenterologists, some fantastic gastros that we work here, uh, that we work with here, um, but also through through dad as well. So like I, I would get a lot of referrals <laughs> through him and learn through him as well. So I would say, and, and, and <laughs> I was going to say in another life, I would have probably been a gastroenterologist. <laughs> Just though, that was my conclusion. <laughs> Well, maybe there might be a next career path. They say that all of us have a couple of careers in us. No, no, absolutely <laughs> I'm not. I'm done with education for now. <laughs> so with your, if if um, the vast or the majority of patients that your clients that you're seeing are in that sort of gut health area, is constipation something that you see commonly in your clients? Yes, we do. So it is a large chunk of, let's say, I'm not going to say one of the main complaints, but it is a very, very common complaint that we get or, or let's say referrals. The tricky thing about constipation is that it's not so straightforward. It's very complex. And we really, I mean, we have evolved now from that simplistic thinking that it's just not going frequently or just having hard lumpy stools. Um, and it's just funny how it does affect um, a person's quality of life. Uh, depending on the severity, but we don't talk about it openly. And that's the thing. I mean, what I try to do is try to talk openly about these topics and then, you know, break the taboo. So a lot of my clients would say, Sandra, you know, you make poo talk salon chic, where, <laughs> you know, we add a little bit of class, but also a bit of humor to, to something that's quite intimate. Um, but yes, it is, as I said, it is, I find constipation trickier than diarrhea. Um, purely because there's just so many different subtypes and getting that accurate diagnosis takes um, t- takes a lot of investigations and just having a good team. So you're, um, you're continuing on the family tradition of kind of slightly weird dinner conversation topics. Then. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but can you tell us, what, talking about trying to define it, um, is there a definition or a criteria, a diagnostic criteria for constipation? Yes. Yeah, so as I said, we have evolved in that simplistic definition. If we have to go by the, let's say the Rome criteria, uh, which gives us, you know, it's a, it's a internationally recognized, let's say diagnostic um, tool that a lot of people use. When we look at constipation, we're looking at having two or more um, of the following for 25% of defecations. And in terms of symptoms, we're looking at hard, let's say hard lumpy stools, straining, um, having that sensation of an incomplete evacuation. And the way I like to describe it is not feeling very fully satisfied when you've left the loo, or as I tell my clients, do you feel like you've fully emptied the tank? Um, having that sensation of, of a potential obstruction um, and having less than three bowel movements uh, a week. So 
The other important thing that I wanted to mention is, yes, we do have a formal definition of constipation, but I always encourage dietitians to ask their clients, what does constipation mean to you? Um, this is also a good starting point or starting, you know, a, a way to start breaking the ice and getting to know their symptoms a bit better. Do we know what, what the cause is? Uh, I assume it's there's lots of causes, but... Yes. Um, and as I said, it, it's really multifactorial and it comes down to the type of constipation. Um, so we've got that definition and we've got different types. So if we have to, again, simplify, we've got two main types of constipation. We've got primary or functional constipation. Um, and the subtypes of, of that type of constipation are things like normal transit constipation. So this is the most common type of constipation. We've got slow transit constipation, which is a motility issue um, or pelvic floor dysfunction. Um, causes of this, let's say, primary or functional constipation are numerous. So let's say a low fiber or low residue diet can be a potential cause. Um, stress, anxiety, um, things like a motility problem. Uh, if we've got SIBO, so small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, um, those would be, let's say, the common causes of that type of constipation. But then when we're talking about secondary constipation, and this is where the constipation happens because of an underlying condition. Um, and a few examples there, whether it's a neurological issue that we're dealing with, um, whether it's medication, so certain drugs um, can cause constipation, or if there's a mechanical obstruction. So for example, if there's um, colon cancer. Um, so this is why to, to really identify the cause, you will need um, specialists to work with. Because um, even coming up with a diagnosis, it's not that easy. What's really important is to, first of all, rule out any secondary causes before we cut, you know, we're working our way backwards. Rule out any secondary causes of constipation and then just come back to, you know, what the actual cause is. And the way we go about that is um, in a medical history, so it's our medical history, and that's what a gastroenterologist is there for. Um, and that also may include a phys physical examination. The problem is that a lot of people's first point of contact is a GP, and they just end up getting smacked with a label of, of constipation. And this is where I encourage a lot of dietitians to ask the right questions because you might have certain red flags popping up um, where you can just refer them out further to a gastroenterologist um, to actually really narrow down right, what is the actual cause and what potential, you know, what, what sort of type are we dealing with. And I guess that is the beauty of being in the position of being a dietitian is that you have time and scope in a consult to question and get more detail like that. Does, does the sort of constipation that you've just described in the primary or secondary, does that differ from IBS-C or constipation associated with IBS? So when it comes to IBS, the differentiator here is pain, abdominal pain. So that tends to be the main differentiator. Um, and sometimes with IBS-C, you might have the occasional loose stool. Um, and again, just having these diagnostic tools or criteria really helps kind of differentiate these different forms. Um, and that also helps us pick the right management approach. And when, when, pay, when your clients come to you, I'm, I'm imagining that sometimes they don't actually present with constipation. They haven't really identified that constipation might be their issue. Do they present, are there other symptoms that are associated with constipation that they might complain about before actually saying they think they're constipated? 
Two main things I'm seeing would be one is, is bloating, very, very common. And the other thing is just, again, probably not a symptom, but a condition is hemorrhoids. Um, uh, yes. And again, people don't want to talk about hemorrhoids out in the open. And no. this is where a lot of straining is happening, et cetera. So um, as I said, it, it, it really is not as straightforward and it can mask in different ways. Um, so yes, obviously a lot of the times they do come in with different complaints. Um, what's really important at the end of the day is, is also, you know, ask your questions. Just like you said, as dietitians, we have about, so with my clients, about 60 minutes, I have a full hour and sometimes we go over the hour with a GP, they've got 10, 15 minutes. Mm. I mean, it takes me 10 to 15 minutes to say hello. So, (laughs) (laughs) So it's not enough time to actually go through the history and just go through your complaints. And this is why I say it's really important that we work closely with the right team or the right, you know, referring out to the right specialist if we start noticing, you know, red flags popping up. Well, let's let's think about what some of your interventions are then. And I mentioned really briefly up the front the, about the three Fs. Um, can you just recap what that approach is and what it sort of looks like in practice? So I'm sure as dietitians, we've all heard about fibre, fluid and fitness. Um, Again, I, I don't want to oversimplify things, but or not bad, not bad mouth what we've been taught. But back in the day, we, you know, the, the general umbrella approach to manage constipation would be to increase your fiber intake, increase your fluid intake, and make sure you are moving frequently or exercising. Um, I like to talk about movement rather than exercise because um, a lot of our clients do have a turbulent relationship with exercise. So it's just about, you know, that, that regular movement that they, they do enjoy and they're likely to be consistent with. Um, I know we're going to probably talk about fiber in a bit more detail, but even when it comes to fluid, a lot of the guidelines say, you know, increasing your fluid intake only if you are dehydrated or only if you're not having sufficient fluid intake. So these tend to be the three Fs. And generally speaking, you know, back in the day as dietitians, we'd say, right, we have, you know, to increase your fiber intake, switch to whole grain products, you know, increasing roughage in your diet, more fruits and vegetables, um, nuts and seeds, so on and so forth. And, you know, for for fluids, aim for a minimum of two liters per day. Um, And then in terms of exercise and movements, you know, focus on 30 minutes a day of some sort of activity. The tricky part is you really need to know what sort of constipation you're dealing with to be actually prescribing, especially when it comes to fiber, because some types of constipation are non-responsive or can actually make your constipation worse if you do increase your fiber intake. So this is why I would say, look, the 3F approach is great, um, but it is, it's becoming way too simple. And I think as dietitians or even dietitians working in this area, we know that these messages have evolved to greater detail. Yeah, and that's a really good point. And if we if we do look a bit deeper into the other sort of dietary components for constipation and fibre specifically, I mean, I'm going back a lot further. And when I was studying dietetics, there was fibre, and maybe we talked about soluble and insoluble, maybe. But gut health was like that was a galaxy far, far away. We hadn't even gone there at all. Um, so with the sort of growing research that there is now about different types of fibre um, and specifically about prebiotics, can you sort of expand a little bit on where that research yeah. has taken us? So as you mentioned, you mentioned soluble um, 
I remember back at uni when we studied what, let's say, the different types of fiber, they were literally categorized as soluble, insoluble, or resistant starch. And that's kind of the three main sources of fiber. Um, yes, it is simplistic. But again, I, I do want to highlight that perhaps that simplicity when communicating with your clients is of benefit because they're not going to sit there and you know want to know about all the physiological or like the, nice. the how do you say it? physical chemical properties of fiber. So from that perspective, I find it still useful to describe the different sources of fiber using those three categories and their food sources. But what we now know is that we've got, you know, it's not just, we're not basing these or categorizing fiber based on their um, viscosity or like, the, you know, that, that sort of property. We've got, you know, fermentable fibers as well. Um, so things like fructans, we've got goss or galacto-oligosaccharides. And this maybe brings us to these definitions of, you know, I, you know, the, the the biotics world, world, sorry. And when we're talking about prebiotics, we are talking about, you know, again, if we had to look at how the definitions evolved through the years, but right now it is a um, substrate that is selectively utilized by host microorganisms, and these microorganisms are gut microbes or probiotics um, that offer a benefit. Um, so when we're talking about prebiotics, we're thinking about these foods, or let's say the, the food for our probiotics, and these are beneficial bacteria and, and yeast as well. Now, the, the one note I wanted to make is that your, your prebiotics are fibers, but not all fibers are prebiotics, if that makes sense. Yep. That's an important distinction, isn't it? That exactly. you can't just interchangeably use those terms. No. Um, and there is an element, I mean, back in the day, well, not back in the day, but the research is showing us there is an element of selectivity as well. So prebiotics, I mean, what they do is not only do they nourish our gut microbes, um, and what they do is uh, they have a huge influence on their activity um, and also, yes, their growth. But the interest there, and this is maybe where I also communicate with my clients, we are interested in prebiotics because of the byproducts of fermenting them. So when our gut microbes ferment prebiotic fibers, the byproducts of fermentation, and this is where we're talking about short chain fatty acids. So these are these anti-inflammatory metabolite compounds that have huge benefit. Um, if we want to bring it back to constipation, what we do know about prebiotics right now in relation to these postbiotics, I know, as I said, we probably we have to kind of highlight these different definitions. Postbiotics are these metabolites, as I mentioned. And if, you know, an example of a short chain fatty acid right now is butyrate, um, which is probably huge in the media. Um, but in relation to constipation, butyrate potentially has a role in regulating intestinal motility. So whether it's diarrhea or constipation, um, so this is where probably the research is, is, is going. So as I said, we've got your probiotics and we can talk about, you know, probiotics in relation to constipation in a second. Prebiotics is where I personally feel the shift of interest will start moving towards uh, and postbiotics as well. So prebiotics are the food, postbiotics are these metabolites that are, or the byproducts of fermenting prebiotics. So just on the on the concept of postbiotic. So again, if I go back to the days when I was studying, I think the only biotic was antibiotics, and we should have known then in that name that that was a, there was a problem. But anyway, that's really all we talked about. But um, with postbiotics and butyrate and the short chain fatty acids, so prebiotics you can get in your diet, probiotics you can take. Postbiotics are they actually being given as a 
a supplement or anything these days? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say, look, I'm going to say yes and no. A, purely because, as with everything, the commercialization is way ahead of the science. In terms of, like, in, in research, I would say we're still not quite there yet when it comes to the efficacy and, and safety even, um, or even when it comes to dosage. Um, I haven't, I, I, again, you are going to see products popping up on the market in, in the form of a pill. Um, as dietitians, I always have that food first policy and then supplement when necessary. So I would say, yes, watch this space. And I do see maybe the, the, the area of postbiotics in terms of supplementation or even being added to foods, maybe move a little bit quicker purely because they're not live microorganisms. Um, so this is where I would say watch this space. So with the with the let's go back to um, the prebiotics then, um, what are we looking for in terms of prebiotics? So when we're talking about prebiotics, think again if we're trying to translate the science or communicating with our clients when it comes to prebiotics, and I'm sure a lot of them have you know when we're talking about FODMAPs or these fermentable sugars basically. So sources would be like your fructans from wheat, um, things like onion and garlic, your dandelion greens. Um, or the inulin type fructans, basically inulin is also a type of a, of a fiber. Um, Galacto-oligosaccharides, your GOS. So this is when we're talking about your legumes, your beans, lentils, chickpeas, soybeans. These I would say would be the main uh, or the popular, let's say, sources of, of these prebiotics because we're starting to see, let's say, GOS added to foods um, and, and supplements as well. Um, same thing as in, with inulin. Um, inulin is the type of fiber found in the roots of, of a lot of your plants. Um, so chicory root um, to be one of the popular ones. And what do we know about, because I gather there's more and more evidence around GOS. What do we know about the beneficial effects of GOS? What, do, what does it actually do? So if we had to look at the main benefit, it is looking at how it impacts um, the growth and activity of beneficial microbes, especially when we're looking at the genera of bifidobacterium, specifically bifidobacterium, but also lactobacilli. Now, again, relating it to constipation, we're seeing that a lot of the times we're referring to bifidobacterium um, as, let's say, probiotic genera, and then we can look at the different strains that have an impact, but it is all interconnected. So with these prebiotics, with the GOS, um, it's it's having that impact or the, that growth or nourishing these probiotics that do play a role when it comes to digestive health. So, so a um, food or a product that contains GOS potentially enhances um, the growth or the proliferation of the good bacteria, and that's generally exactly. bifido or lactobacillus. And exactly. what about in terms of um, probiotics and, and constipation? Is there anything we're looking for? for strains? Because we know that strains are specific to conditions. Exactly. And this is where I highlight, maybe if you want to kind of take it one step back, when it comes to probiotics, probiotic research is actually quite complex. Um, a lot of our clients love to jump on the probiotic supplement bandwagon. And even when it comes to probiotic supplements, I really try to highlight, you know, treat probiotics like medication. I'm going to be very simplistic here, but if you've got a cough or a cold, you would take a medication specific to that symptom that you're experiencing. Um, and this is where I would say, try to treat probiotics more or less the same way. So there is a, you know, there is a time and place for multi-strain probiotics. 
Um, and there are lots of blends, let's say a, a lactobacillus or lactobifidal blend that are beneficial to certain conditions. But when it comes to constipation, we are looking at specific strains. And there are some, you know, there is some decent research looking at these specific strains in relation to um, bowel frequency and gut motility. And if you had to look at some of these strains, one would be um, Bifidobacterium lactis um, BB12. Another one would be Bifidobacterium lactis HNO19. And then we have the Lactobacillus from Gnosis GG. Um, yes, the names are extremely sexy and easy to remember. <laughs> but that's the thing I, I think, as I said, even just as dietitians, um, there, you know, be critical, um, not, not critical, take the time to do the research, take the time to see if that, you know, is there a time and place? Are we dealing, you know, do we need to include a, a multi-strain here or do we need to be strain specific? I would say about 80% of the time, I like to work with strain specific probiotics, but there is a time and place for that multi-strain. When we're dealing with constipation, strain specific would be probably the way to go. And if you have a client who perhaps is suffering um, a sort of an acute phase of constipation for some reason, will these sorts of interventions, probiotics, prebiotics, have an effect in that situation? Again, yes, but I think before, you have to have the time to sit down and understand why is this acute constipation happening in the first place. Um, and the reason why I'm saying understanding your client's history is really important because as I mentioned before, constipation may not just be a nutritional issue. It can be that disorder of that gut brain access. And a lot of the times if they're going through an acute period of stress or anxiety, that can have a huge impact on the gut motility. So your management approach might not just be nutrition. You might need to refer them out to specific sort of therapy, um, gut related, let's say hypnotherapy, CBT, um, that might have more of an impact than the nutritional side of things. But obviously yeah. if we are seeing things that we need to modify from a nutritional perspective, yes, they would have a benefit. And in, in clients who they might not necessarily meet that constipation criteria, um, maybe they're just experiencing times of infrequent stools, uh, will they still benefit from that overall nutritional advice of, you know, getting the prebiotics, having the different types of fiber in their diet? Look, I believe, yes, they would. But again, I would even approach when that topic of fiber comes up, I would approach how quickly we are increasing a person's fiber intake. Because if you look at the general population, generally, we probably would be consuming anywhere between 15 to 20 grams of fiber. So looking at what their baseline consumption is like, to try to increase, you know, and when we're talking about gradually, because you can a make the constipation worse, but also we're trying to avoid a lot of these gut symptoms, of the, you know, the bloating, the discomfort, etc. So when we're trying to increase the time frame here, it, it can happen. I mean, I would say when I work with my clients, regardless of you know whether it's acute or even chronic, again, they, you know, it, it, it's all relevant. But I tend to do it over a six to eight week period to avoid a lot of the discomfort or a lot of, let's say, the side effects that, that, that are associated with increasing your fiber intake, but also being specific with the different fibers that you are including in a person's diet. So let's say someone that's just presenting with acute constipation, you've ruled out anything serious, it's just temporary. 
A good way to communicate that is using the the 30 plant-based ingredients per week. So not just focusing on how much, but also fiber diversity. So an easy way to do is just get what their baseline score is in terms of, let's say, their their plant-based diversity and slowly and gradually increase that to get to a target of 30. Um, And again, before jumping on any supplement bandwagon, as I said, we like to go through the food first policy. There's a lot of natural, you know, food sources of probiotics, whether we're talking about some dairy products and kefir, um, fermented foods like um, sauerkraut. So fermented cabbage, which is very popular here, you know, the German speaking side of it, (laughs) you know, Um, before jumping. So for me, before jumping on any supplementation per se, I try to focus more on the natural sources of let's say your prebiotics and probiotics. Yeah. So and that, that's a good place to start. And if we can just explore that a bit more. So um, just briefly, if you have a client come in and constipation appears to be what their primary, their main issue is that you think mm-hmm. and everything's medically, there's nothing, um, no red flags there. What do you first look for in, their, in your assessment of their diet? What are the sort of key things that you look for? So one would be a fiber diversity, looking at the different types of, you know, fruits and vegetables. Um, How many vegetables do they consume on a weekly basis? So generally speaking, I would aim for 10 to 13 different types of vegetables, um, four different types of fruits, looking at nuts and seeds, Um, things like, you know, do they consume enough whole grain products? Um, How often do they eat out versus eating in? Because that's, again, you know, looking at a person's lifestyle is quite important. you know, if they do tend to can, I do because I work in corporate as well. So a lot of our clients don't even know how to cook. They're actually consuming a lot of their food outside of home. Um, So this is maybe a good starting point is just getting that, you know, baseline idea of how much fiber they're consuming. Um, Fluid is another thing that we're looking for. Um, and movement, as I said. So again, going back to the three Fs as a general template can be a good starting point. Um, And then looking at little tweaks. So as you know, if they're consuming less than 10 vegetables a week, that could be a starting point for us to just increase their vegetable intake. Um, Adding nuts and seeds, but also making sure that we're not adding too much fiber into one meal, but making sure we're having that spread out throughout the day is another thing that I also um, uh, highly advise dietitians do. Um, And then the other thing is things like kiwi fruit. I know kiwi fruit is probably a very underrated fruit, Um, but it does, it is one of these natural sort of constipation remedies that I get my clients to know. I always say one or two kiwi fruits a day keeps constipation at bay. Um, so these are very, yeah. again, if we've basic. got any New Zealand listeners, I'm sure they're <laughs> all going, yes, we always <laughs> recommend the kiwi fruit. It um, is, look, it, it does work, but then, you know, when all these advice, you know, if we're hitting a, a brick wall, whenever we're, you know, when it comes to increasing fiber, et cetera, it's just, you know, probably digging deeper. And this is where a lot of the times, and this is what, as I said, I base my approach here, regardless of why people see us is look at these four pillars, look at nutrition. If you've done everything from a nutritional perspective, what else is missing? Is it fluid? Is it their stress levels? Is it that mind pillar that you would probably need to address as well? And when you're uh, assessing the nutrition side of it and you're looking at fiber, then from what you've said, it sounds like you're assessing quality and diversity as much as quantity. 
Exactly. I would say I start off with quality and diversity first and then quantity second. Um, it's also easier when you're trying to communicate your information to clients. They're not going to sit there with a ready reckoner trying to calculate, you know, how much grams of fiber. Yes, we do. I mean, what we're trying to do is simplify that for our clients. So we tell them, right, this is what 20 grams of fiber a day would look like, or this is what 15 grams of fiber a day would look like. Because some of our clients, this is what their starting point would be. But then over, let's say, a um, a four-week period, what we would do is we just give them practical, actionable steps to take. So adding a kiwi fruit a day, maybe start adding a tablespoon of chickpeas to your meal three days a week, working your way up to maybe half a cup. Um, that's the sort of communication that we have with our clients. And again, just do it gradually. And so is, when, you're, is a, is when, yeah, when you're trying to get them to increase that fiber, you would would your step be to try and one of the inclusions will be a new type of fiber so expanding the range Diversity. that they're having yeah exactly okay and how do they usually like how effective do you see this you know do they people that take it on board and increase it they must feel like it just improves their general well-being so much better yeah. if it alleviates <laughs> constipation I think if I had to sort of screenshot all the emails that we get, one of the, it's not just about the constipation, but I think a lot of our clients, they don't want to feel bloated anymore. I think that was, that would be one of the reasons, you know, even ask your clients, so what would be one thing that you would want to, to solve? A would be just feeling fully satisfied when I walk out of the loo and not feeling like I've still got so much in there. Um, so that would be one thing. And yes, it, and, and explaining to your clients that it does take time. So patience, this is where compliance, you know, obviously we're going to have issues with compliance, but it's really about, you know, trying to not overwhelm a client so much with all these different changes that they have to make. But once they start seeing progress and they're like, I've had, you know, a, you know, a type three or a type four, I'm like, right, don't photograph that, but just, you know, <laughs> let's just celebrate um, or just going daily. So the goal for us is to, you know, have, you know, your bowels open every day, um, once a day, and then aim for that type three or type four um, sausage-like, easy to pass stool. Um, <laughs> and once you get to that point, we are celebrating. Um, the other thing, as I said, maybe just talking about constipation is posture. Ask your clients about how are they on, on the, you know, when, on the loo. Um, we try to use the C method, sit, elevate, and eliminate. So this is an easy way to kind of remind our clients, but this is actually something that I ask a lot of my clients. So, you know, show me how, how do you sit on the loo? Do you have any distractions? How long are you on there for? Do you strain? So these are also things or advice that I feel dietitians can actually um, uh, provide to clients. Yeah. That that's really good, and I'm sure that. Well, firstly, I'm sure that that is not covered in the dietetics courses. Still. No. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not. nice to have those sorts of practical tips. <laughs> so you've mentioned um, the the general overall pillars um, that you talk about with clients, no matter what they're seeing you for, and nutrition is just one of those pillars um, within yeah. nutrition. As far as fiber goes and constipation, you've mentioned. Um, quality or diversity as well as quantity um, you've mentioned prebiotics uh, and that there are a whole range of them and they're in foods and goss is just one of them um, probiotic strains um, including bb12 uh, and how you go about assessing a diet are there any other 
sort of key points that you would like dietitians who are listening to this to take away? My So one of my first points is create a safe environment for your clients to ask these intimate questions. People don't want to talk to you about their poo. People don't want to talk about hemorrhoids openly. So I think it's up to us to create that safe environment to ask these questions. Um, also, as I said, you might uncover things that perhaps the doctors might have missed out. And this is, you know, take advantage of the time that you do have with your clients. The other thing is, again, going back to the topic of fiber, try to, you know, think outside of the box. You know, not all fiber is created equal. Think outside of the box. Um, try to try to understand your client's need. Try to find out what has worked because they might have, you know, they, they probably did increase their fiber intake. And if that's not working, are we looking at something else? Are we looking at a motility issue, for example? Um, so that would be, I think, potentially the two main things. So that, you know, asking the right questions, think outside of the three main types of fiber. Um, as I said, off the top of my head, these would be probably the two main things I would encourage dietitians to do. And make sure you are working with a good team. That's another thing, you know, the MDT. So have a good multidisciplinary team. Um, and if you don't have that, create that for your clients. So I feel like I'm my client's advocate. So I would make sure I would refer them to a right gastroenterologist, have myself on board. But even sometimes you might need a physiotherapist who potentially specializes in pelvic floor training they might need to be on board as well. Yeah, which I was just about to ask, actually, who is in your multidisciplinary team? So you have a gastroenterologist or a medical person, a physiotherapist, exactly. potentially others that you get involved, psychologists? Um, therapists. So exactly, I was just going to say, so certain psychologists, psychiatrists as well. So we do work very closely with all these specialists because um, at the end of the day, and this is where communication is really important, communication amongst the team, just to make sure that we're all on the same page and we're moving in the direction that best fits our client's progress as well. And if something's not working, and this is what I absolutely love about working with the gastroenterologists here who are very receptive and open to working with dietitians, is they always tell me, look, Sandra, if it's not working, send them back to us and we'll see what's going on. Well, I think you've you've highlighted really nicely how important it is that the care and interventions are individualised. We can't just apply exactly the same treatment or intervention across um, all of our clients. And, and hopefully during our gut health month, we can actually get that message out to consumers that going to see a dietitian will allow them to get personalised help uh, and, and give them time to talk through um, how they can in, improve their quality of life. Absolutely. And I think as dietitians, it's really important in terms of, I'm not going to say, you know, I'm very defensive of our profession, but I think in a way, looking at who's the authority when it comes to nutrition right now, everyone's, you know, either jumping on social media to get their so, you know, source of information. We've got lots of different, you know, um, I always call them, you know, the unicorn society, <laughs> um, you know, jumping left, right and center saying, you know, having all the answers, et cetera. Um, and probably this is something that I've mentioned. Yes, a lot of our work is science-based evidence, but when you're working with your clients, to be honest with you, they don't care about science. They just want you to solve their pain points. So this is where I would say as dietitians, look at how you're communicating, how you can help your clients, um, especially when it comes to, to gut health. Yeah, so so dietitians have a, a really um, a responsibility to 
do both those things, don't they? To be really up to date on the evidence and understand Absolutely. what the evidence and science is, but also be able to communicate and translate that evidence um, to to their clients. So I think you've you've covered that so nicely today, Sandra. We'd really like to thank you so much for your time um, and and sharing all those tips uh, with our listeners and the dietitians. And now they know to ask about um, posture on the toilet. Um, and <laughs> we would also uh, like to thank Culture and Dairy Farmers Gut Active for supporting our podcast today. So thanks very much, Sandra. Thank you. To get all of the links and resources we discussed in this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learnt, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you, and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.